Lines it up. Leopold ahead for Jerome McGill, and that goes right down the legacy. Here, play that high off the glass, and up many legacies, handling confidence. A major change from previous year. Bumpy walking in, dropping it off. Here's Mark Powers walking in. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Episode 53 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast has a Boston Bruins focus. First, we'll talk with Mark Mowers, a seven-year NHL forward with Nashville, Detroit, Boston, and Anaheim, about his playing career in his current role as a scout with the Minnesota Wild. Now, before embarking on his pro career, Mowers was a Hobie Baker finalist and a two-time All-Hockey East selection during his days as a University of New Hampshire Wildcat. Mark was also a prolific scorer in the IHL and AHL before adopting a checking role in the NHL. In addition to talking about his role with his respective NHL teams, Mark shares interesting insights on legendary teammates such as Brett Hull, Steve Eiserman, Nicholas Lidstrom, Brendan Shanahan, Zdeno Chara, Patrice Bergeron, and many more. Following our discussion with Mark, we'll talk with the voice of the Boston Bruins alumni, the Emmy Award-winning John Horrigan. We'll discuss his role with the Bruins alumni in the upcoming charity game between the Bruins legends and the New York Rangers alumni. And finally, we'll conclude the show with former Bruins defenseman Frank Simonetti, who discusses the origins of the Warrior for Life Fund and how that charity has teamed with the Bruins alumni, the Bruins Foundation, and the Navy SEALs Foundation to assist soldiers and their families. Before starting the show, I want to thank those of you who have left a rating and comments for the show on iTunes. The comments and reviews have been sensational and are greatly appreciated. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show and leaving a review and rating, as these will help the show be more visible to hockey fans around the world. Remember, you can contact me directly via ProHockeyAlumni.org. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Mark Mowers. Back on the show with Mark Mowers, an active member of the Boston Bruins alumni, an NHL scout with the Minnesota Wild, and 
a, uh, a veteran of the National Hockey League with the Detroit Red Wings, Nashville, Anaheim, and of course, the Boston Bruins. Mark, thanks so much for being with us here today. Well, it's great to be on. I, uh, I'm looking forward to some questions here. Mark, yeah, back in the mid-70s, in Atlanta, Georgia, the Atlanta Flames were the team back then, and uh, hockey was born in Atlanta, and so was the career of a future NHL player, uh, Mark Mowers. How did uh, your family end up in Georgia? I, I have a feeling, looking through your record, it was short-lived. You ended up in New York, but uh, how was it that you were born in Atlanta, Georgia? Actually, Decatur, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so my dad was. This, this question comes up all the time, and there's actually been a there's been a thing that I don't know. I'm not a stat thing, but uh, I guess every state like the leading scores from every state, and it just I don't know if it just came out or whatever. But I keep getting these texts every once in a while about <laughs> this guy's joking with me because I'm I'm still the the uh, the leading scorer from anyone born in the state of Georgia. But <laughs> but anyways. Uh, my dad was in the service, and he bopped around a little bit. My brother was born in Texas, and I was in Georgia, and then uh, my sister up in um, uh, upstate New York, and that's kind of where we ended up settling down. So, yeah, it was short-lived, um, less than two years down there, and didn't really get the skates on until I uh, headed north. What was the youth hockey situation like in upstate New York, and when did you start playing and when did you start feeling like this is uh, something you had a you had a good talent for? Uh, it's it's interesting you say that because I, I you know I guess assuming looking back you know I think most people would think maybe it was already kind of strong and you know plenty of rinks everywhere but um, in our town we didn't really have a rink and um, it's just outside of Utica and I believe there was a rink in Utica but it. Um, the town of Whitesboro and the surrounding towns didn't really have um, any, a lot of extra ice. So I, I thank my parents, you know, not as much anymore, but as I was playing, because they were, they were big in it. Um, they were, my mom was more of an athlete than my dad. Uh, mm-hmm. I hope he's not listening, but, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyway, they, uh, I don't know. It was just a group of, group of parents and uh, the interest um, having the uh, Utica Comets around. And, you know, that was the hockey team that we kind of watched, uh, you know, at, at a younger age. And, and before you know it, they were a bunch of parents were constructing a rink just in an open piece of land. And we played outside for a few months. And before you know it, the town jumped in and they built the town rink and, and, and off we went, um, you know, at, at four years old, five years old, whatever it was whatever it may be, but, um, yeah, I just continued playing for fun. Really. I just, uh, loved the game and, um, like to score goals and, and one thing led to another before you knew it, I was 16, 17 and still, still, I, you know, in my mind, I wasn't, um, um, thinking about the NHL. I tell people that all the time. It was, I, I, I never laid in bed when I was 14 or 16 and just dreamt of playing the NHL. I just didn't, that wasn't really on my radar, to be honest. I just, I just loved playing the game and wanted to play as long as I possibly could, and um, and and there you go. Boy, it shows you the power and impact of a community coming together and making it possible for a young guy like you to play hockey, get out there in the ice, have a place to play, and eventually. I was going to say realize your dream, but it wasn't even your dream at that point. But in, <laughs> in the meantime, yeah. you end up at a great hockey school, University of New Hampshire. And I'm curious, now, obviously, as your career is progressing, 
you're getting attention from various colleges, junior teams, et cetera. Can you talk to me a little bit about that's something now that you, you know, you're, you're very, very familiar with, but what was it like for you? Uh, what type of colleges and teams reached out to you and what was the decision uh, end up being to get you to the University of New Hampshire? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, once again, graduating high school just locally and, and from my, uh, my hometown growing up and then getting an opportunity to play some junior in Saginaw and then Dubuque. And, um, but even, even going into Saginaw, I wasn't really even thinking about college. I was just thinking about extending my career. And, and then once I moved over to Dubuque in the USHL, then things started opening up a little bit. And I was like, wow, I might be able to go play college hockey here. Cause you know, you start talking to uh, scouts and uh, coaches and whatnot and agents start calling. So, um, as far as the list, it was it, early on, it was Bowling Green, Providence, and, and UNH were like the first three schools that reached out to me. And those are the first three schools I said, I'm going to visit. That's kind of how I was. I wasn't going to, I wasn't holding cards or trying to play hardball with anybody. I just, when someone wanted me, I was, I was, uh, that attracted me enough to, to go for it. So um, I took visits to those three schools, ended up visiting um, uh, Minnesota Duluth, um, a big reason because Brett Hole went there, but but anyways, I'm glad I did just to get a look of somewhere, you know, in the Midwest. And, and then I went to North Dakota as well. Same thing, just to kind of make sure that um, in my mind, because in my mind, I was thinking I wanted to go back east. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I didn't, want, I didn't want to be right next to home, but um, right. I wanted my parents to have an opportunity to, to watch me play if possible. And um, so in my mind, it was Providence or UNH and, and um, uh, those two schools in particular that attracted me. And once again, it was. I just wanted to play, you know, they were kind of middle of the road schools. Like they were, you know, not in last place, but not in first. And just, you know, uh, cause ironically after, after I took the visits, it seemed like every team kind of called after two, it was like BU and Michigan and this and that. But, um, but just getting back to the point, I wanted to go somewhere I could play. And so I kind of narrowed it down to Providence and UNH. And, um, and at the time when I went to Providence, I love both schools. They're both great. Um, the coaching situation in Providence was a little bit in flux and that kind of, uh, um, pushed me to UNH, you could say, but, uh, so it made it, it made it an easier decision, um, to pick, to pick the Wildcats, but, um, once getting there and being on campus and, and starting or becoming more of the tradition, but starting to elevate, uh, being a part of the group that elevated, you know, UNH to, um, to higher ranks was, uh, it was a great time. It was a great time for for the university and a great time for the program. Right. And those are prolific times, not only for the Wildcats program, but for you individually. You remember for an overtime goal you know, against uh, Boston University, NCAA East Regionals in 1998, with the Wildcats eventually reaching the Frozen Four. Uh, tell us a little bit about your, your great memories from the uh, outstanding career that you had at the University of New Hampshire. Yeah, I mean, the biggest, that was the one you hit on was in Albany and it was the first time that the school went to um, the final four, at least while it was part of hockey East. Um, I know back when it was the ECAC, they had some great teams with, uh, with Ralph and Cliff Cox and I could go on with all ton, tons of names, but, uh, but as far as hockey East, we beat BU in, I don't know, I think it was double or triple overtime in Albany. And I don't think anybody really expected us to, to do it, but we did. And, got to play in Boston was the final four. And um, right. unfortunately, unfortunately it didn't last long. We uh, um, ran into a good goalie and a good Michigan team that ended up winning it. But 
Um, but yeah, that was definitely a highlight. And obviously being the one that scores the goal, it kind of, you know, it was for me when I'm at, whenever I'm in a bad mood, I kind of play that tape and it kind of gets me back <laughs> in a good mood. So, uh, but yeah, there's a couple of those goals in my, in my playing career. And that's certainly one of them that's, that's up there. And, um, and you know what, we had a great team. We had a good, you know, from, from the, from the goaltender, you know, on out, we had a, we had a great team, a lot of depth and it kind of cat, you know, from there on, you know, over the next six or seven years at UNH, it, you know, that year catapulted them to, a, you know, a couple more, three or four more final fours and a chance, uh, the very next year against Maine, which didn't, uh, didn't, uh, result in a win either, but, um, but anyway, it was a good stretch there for uh, for UNH hockey and and um, put them on the map there for a while. Right, and put you on the map as well to the National Hockey League. Uh, you've come out of there, uh, New Hampshire, with uh, uh, strong skill set, strong skater, obviously a leader, established uh, yourself as that as well. You end up signing with the expansion Nashville Predators, and I was curious what was the experience like upon graduation uh, from the University of New Hampshire? You're finishing your fourth year of hockey there. Uh, I'm assuming multiple teams uh, reached out to you. You chose Nashville. I was curious about your thought process. Um, yeah, it was. Um, I would say, I don't know if there was multiple. I, I do. The, the two that I remember were Edmonton and Nashville. At least that's kind of what it came down to. And, um, you know, I talked to my agent quite a bit about it and, you know, we both kind of agreed that, you know, what would be better, you know, than starting out with an expansion team where I'm an older guy because I went to school late. So I was 24 at the time and it just seemed like the perfect fit where, you know, if I could go and, you know, start out well in, in uh, Milwaukee in the American league, then, you know, they wouldn't hesitate to call me up because of my age and, um, you know, the, the experience that I, the experiences that I've already had. So, and um, that's kind of what happened. I mean, I uh, played maybe three months in Milwaukee and then got the call and ended up playing 30 NHL games my first year. And um, so on, on that part of it, it was a, it was a good decision. And, um, you know, within the organization for four years and kind of popped up and down and um, won pretty much one full year there. But, um, but anyway, it was, uh, that, that was kind of the, the decision-making part of it that, that swayed us to go to Nashville was, um, you know, we just thought the opportunity would be better. Um, you know, you never know. And you could ask every guy you talk to on this podcast. I mean, they could make a different decision and it could end up better. It could end up worse. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's sometimes I think back and, and, and think, well, maybe Edmonton would have been, would have been more ideal as far as giving me a, a longer look, you know, cause I was kind of a yo-yo guy in Nashville, uh, for most of my time there. Um, you know, because looking back, Edmonton, it seemed like they had a, a good, um, they gave college guys a really good look, put it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was something I didn't really know at the time. And maybe that would have made the decision harder, but um, I don't think so. I think uh, I think we, we went with our gut and, um, and all in all, you know, it, it kind of catapulted me to get some experience in the NHL and, and somebody noticed because, you know, you get another, get another contact, contract with Detroit and um, uh, before you know it, that year I was, you know, kind of a, after one year in Grand Rapids, I was somewhat of a, you know, a regular NHL player for two years in, in Detroit. So it, was, it worked out good. Right. It sure did. And I, I want to go back to uh, a couple of your coaches early in your career. One was former Boston Bruins defenseman Al Sims, uh, your coach in, in Milwaukee. And I was curious, yeah. uh, he developed quite a 
solid reputation coaching in the in the minor leagues. Uh, what was your experience like as uh, I believe he was your first pro coach in the minors, and what was Al like as a coach? Yeah, he was great. He was uh, he was hard. He tested every every new guy. He gave you know he was he was more of an old school coach where you know you had to prove that um, you belong. You have to prove that you're going to work every day and. Um, and you can handle the uh, ups and downs of the schedule and wins and losses and, and all that stuff. So, um, you know, he, he taught me how to be mentally tougher, I guess you could say. Because um, I wasn't, uh, I'm not a really, I'm not a confident guy until I get comfortable. Right. Um, and that's just the way I was, whether it was the beginning of the season on the ice. Usually it took me a little while to get going or when I meet new people or whatnot. So, um, he was good for me because uh, he was hard, but he was fair. And, and looking back, everything that he said it made perfect sense. Um, and my, like most people will tell you when they're retired, it's hard to see it when you're in the, when you're in the moment. But mm-hmm. when they look back, it, um, these guys know what they're talking about. No doubt about it. And speaking of that, you had a really interesting coaching trio, at least for me, a coach coaching trio in Nashville. Uh, one of our previous show guests, Paul Gardner, of course, a legendary from a legendary hockey family who had a terrific NHL mm-hmm. career on, on his own. Merritt, uh, my old friend from the Hartford Whalers, Barry Peterson, uh, uh, Brent Peterson, excuse me. Um, yeah. And, uh, of course, uh, Barry Trotz, uh, head coach of the team, who now uh, everybody recognizes as a Stanley Cup winner and a high-profile coach. <laughs> it's curious now when you, uh, I, I, I guess, your memories of, of him as a head coach and how that may compare contrast compared to how he's seen these days 20 years uh, or so later yeah i think um uh it's hard to tell i mean i don't know i'm not in the room i don't know exactly what he's doing you know structural wise but um he's still considered a player's coach uh he always has been and i think um he still is um guys like playing for him. Um, I do believe he's become a little bit more demanding, um, especially with the defensive part of the game. Um, that's kind of his, you know, his specialty um, at this point, at least that's the way the teams play. Um, but yeah, he was, um, he was a guy similar to, similar to how I had in, in, in Boston with Dave Lewis. He was, he was a, he was a guy, a friendly guy and he put stuff on the paper or up on the, the, the board the, as far as how he wanted guys to play, the power play, all the systems, what whatnot. And he expects you to go out and just perform what's, what's been told and um, work hard and, you know, uh, execute and, and whatnot. He was, uh, he wasn't a yeller. He wasn't a screamer, uh, very even keeled. As you can see, when you watch his game still, he's just um, back there, has a sip of water and just, uh, there's not, not a lot of emotion. Um, so I don't think a lot has changed as far as his uh, coaching personality. Um, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. Um, I do think um, his details defensively, he's probably more demanding. And if you're not willing to buy in, he probably is not going to have much time for you and, and will speak up maybe more than he would have back in 1999. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, Mark, what was Nashville? Obviously, the new brand new hockey market so it's relatively unique you know i talked a little bit about paul gardner about that about you know, selling the game and the fans getting uh, acclimated to the sport of hockey but how did you find nashville as a city to play hockey in 
Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I mean, I, maybe I didn't absorb it as much as I could have just because I was trying to get my career going and you're maybe a little selfish on that way. Um, but that being said, the building was, the building was rocking, um, you know, all the country uh, singers in there and singing the national anthem and just coming to watch and get a, get a look at hockey game, which is something they've never seen before. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. And it's, it's, it's great to see where it's at right now. It's almost become, um, it's almost become a hockey city when you go down. Right. It's a big party before a big party after the building sold out. They do a great job um, in between whistles with entertaining the fans. Um, they've done a, They've done an outstanding job keeping it um, at a high level and a, and, and on top of, I mean, I could probably list six or seven that I think are better buildings than the rest of the league. And they're definitely in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the one thing that I remember and I always, it, it just, it boggled my mind at the time, but I understood why, but it was kind of like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening is in between whistles when you're on the bench. And like, so if there's an icing or a penalty, you look up at the big screen and it would say, it would, give a definition would show icing oh, and then uh-huh. give the definition of icing. Nice. So all the fans kind of knew, you know, because half of them or more probably didn't know what was even going on, mm-hmm. why the whistle's going. So it was kind of interesting to have a dictionary um, <laughs> up on the big screen during the game. But that's uh, one thing I'll, I'll never forget, but it didn't take long because they know what they're, they know what they're watching now. That's for sure. You're right. So in 1999, 2000, <laughs> you score your first goal in the national hockey league with the national predators. Do you remember? I assume you remember that first goal and time, place, and <laughs> goaltender. What was that like? Yeah, it was great. Because, um, like I told you, I, I my first year I played thirty games up, and anyone that looks at the stats will 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 sh- it'll, it shows that it's zero dash six. So I didn't get a I didn't get a goal my mm-hmm. first year, and you know that kind of weighs on you a little bit, especially when you're you're kind of known at least down in the minor leagues as being a guy that produces, and even if you're not. Uh, even if you're not getting the minutes that you get down in the, in the minors, you still see a goose egg there and you want your first goal. So, right. um, yeah, we, it was against Montreal. Um, I think the game was four or five to one and, um, yeah, just got a quick little break two on one and, and one time it in, it was, uh, Jose Theodore was the goalie. Uh, like you said, it's those are details you don't forget. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did well, the, the, the funny part of the, not funny, but I mean, uh, so in my mind, I look up at the I look up at the heavens and I'm thanking God, thank thank God the thing went posting in and didn't miss. And <laughs> so I'm I got a huge smile and I think the I think it was Scotty Walker um, that was that passed it to me and he knew he knew it was my first goal. But Tommy Fitzgerald was also out in the ice and you know I was going I was kind of going crazy like <laughs> because it was my first goal and Tommy's like hey come on come on and I was like what do you mean what? he's like well it's six one. And he's like, what? and I said, yeah, it's my first goal. He goes, oh, oh, I, did, I forgot about it. I forgot all about it. So he thought I was rubbing it in at six to one, but That's really, funny. it was just my first goal. So it was a it was a great moment and a relief a relief at that point. Yeah, I can imagine. And you had noted noted previously your experiences in the IHL and then the AHL, where you were extremely productive, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of points, a lot of ice time. And as you noted, you were going up and down NHL, AHL, et cetera. So my question is, during that time frame, psychologically, from a mental standpoint, is that uh, difficult? Does it weigh on you after a few years? Are you saying to yourself, is this futile? Will I ever make it? Uh, What's going on Mm -hmm. in your mind at that time? Yeah, I mean, we could probably talk about this for an hour. To be honest (laughs) with you, it's... uh, 
and it, and it relates to what I, what I do now as a scout because I see it all the time with players. You know, when they get in their second, third, fourth year and they've just gotten a few games and, you know, are they giving up? Is their, uh, their psyche, all that stuff, it's just you're trying to, you're trying to figure out and, and going through it, I kind of get it, you know, and I, I, I know some guys are more confident than others and, and whatnot. Um, you know, and going back to the, uh, the coaching staff in Nashville, you know, and I, I've seen Trotty a few times and we've talked about this and, and um, he, he, you know, he, not, a, I'm not saying he admitted it, but he agrees with me that, you know, he wishes the communication would have been a little bit better with guys like me, where you, you're in a scoring role down in the minors, you get called up and you're put in more of a checking role. Um, you don't, you don't know what you're supposed to do, you know, and that's what, you know, you, yeah, you listen to the coach. That's what I did, you know, and I just went out there and I skated as fast as I could. I created energy, I chipped it in, but as far as getting scoring chances and creating opportunities um, on the score sheet, it, um, I just played a different, completely different game where it kind of took, it took the your instincts and skills almost out of the game. And the more you do it, the more you do it, the harder it is to kind of go back. Um, especially when you're, especially when you're only playing, I mean, there, there was probably 40 games I played under five minutes, you know, wow. at, at that time, it's a little different now the, you know, coaches seem to use the fourth line, you know, more than that. I would say now the average is maybe more like nine, mm-hmm. eight to 10, something like that. But back then when, you know, you had a, you had a big bruising fighter or two on the fourth line and you're the centerman guess what? That's just the way it rolls. And you're going to get three or four minutes right. and watch a couple of fights during the game. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, back to your, back to your, your point, it's, it's very, it is very difficult. And it, it um, uh, I don't know. I want to say by the time I got to Boston, it was almost like I, my game completely switched where the skills and the, you know, you know poise with the puck and, I was now a, completely a checker almost. And um, I did it because I, you know, I did it in Detroit because I wanted to stay in the lineup and that was the way that it was going to stay in the lineup. And for a guy my size too, it's you're, you know, I call, I call guys like me now like tweeners <laughs> because you're just, you're, you're a skill guy, but you're smaller and you, it's hard for you to get an opportunity with good players. Um, and more often than not, you have to make a decision and, change your game a little bit or, or be a prolific AHL scoring uh, scorer, you know? So, but it's a, it's a very good topic and I'm glad you brought it up because it's, um, it's, uh, it happened to me and it's, it happens to guys all the time. I see it. I see it on a nightly basis. No question. And so many times I talk with ex players and so much often comes down to, I say it on the show a lot. So much comes down to fate, timing, luck, circumstance, who your lineman is, who your coach is, what the injury situation is. And in your case, you've got to adapt and adjust. And the reality is that you were able to find yourself a good role and play for an outstanding Detroit Red Wings team for two years. Uh, And the players, it had to be an incredible experience for uh, a young guy like yourself. You're playing with the future Hall of Famers like uh, Steve Eiserman, Brett Hull, Brendan Shanahan, Nicholas Lidstrom, some of the best players to ever play. 
Can mm. you talk about a little bit about those guys? I mean, I'd love to find out uh, your your viewpoints going into that situation. Yeah. You've got Mike Babcock as the coach, high profile, powerful team. Um, what was that experience like? Yeah, so I mean, going back, I guess so after the four years in Nashville, I, I kind of basically asked for my release just to in just because I, you know, I just I wanted to get a, a more a better opportunity to be a regular NHL player. And I just, uh, I didn't see it happening there and they were gracious enough to kind of let me go, which doesn't happen quite a bit. So, um, so anyways, the choice to go to Detroit, there was a few teams that I could have signed with, you know, all two way deals, not one way deals. So, you know, knowing that I was going to have to work up the ladder again, but my mindset was completely different than when I chose Nashville because Nashville, I thought it would be a great opportunity if I get a chance at whatever, you know, we're kind of a lot of guys on the same page. And, but with Detroit, I was like, you know what? Like, let me, maybe if I go the other way and if I can somehow sneak in there and get into the lineup, play, you know, having so much talent around me where in Nashville, you know, no disrespect to Cliff Ranning and some of those guys, which I never got to play with, but, <laughs> but there was a different, like you said, it was a different lineup in Detroit. And I just thought if I could get in there, and get an opportunity, there could be a chance where I could stick because I could maybe compliment some of these guys, you know, in a role, in a role playing situation. So, um, so anyways, I get to, I sign with them and play the first year in Grand Rapids, the entire year in, in Grand Rapids. Um, I had a great, I had a, I was back to kind of um, being, you know, a power play guy and the uh, producing type guy uh, had a great team there. We made it to the uh, semifinals. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I had a great year and then the next training camp. So Dave Lewis was the coach at this time too. Um, cause Babcock came in after, but anyway, so Dave Lewis, the next year I got sent down again. I think I was down for maybe three weeks and then got called up and then I never went back. Um, so, so it, it kind of worked, but, um, but anyway, as far as going into those guys that you were talking about, I mean, I can't even list them all. There was probably over the three years that I was there in the organization, there had to have been over 20 um, Hall of Famers, I believe. But but Lindstrom, just an unbelievable, like quiet, humble, smartest defenseman I've ever played with, without a question. Mm-hmm. Um, Eiserman, same thing. He was very quiet. Uh, when he spoke, people listened. Um, but just his details and his work ethic off the ice, on the ice, like I was as much as in awe I was at times when I was in Nashville, um, it was, it was even harder. It was even harder my first nice. year in the Detroit, in the Detroit locker room, because I was, you know, I didn't want to stare at these guys, but I also wanted to learn from them as <laughs> much as I could. So, um, you know, Brendan Shanahan, you know, just the, the quirkiness that he had with all the stuff that he did to prepare and get himself ready to go. And, and he was great with me. You know, he was, he was great in the, in the fact that he, he was one of the, the players that I got to play with occasionally. And um, I actually wish I would have listened to him a little bit more because he was always like, listen, you're the centerman, carry the puck, mm-hmm. you know? But I, and I was like, I was like, I, I know what you're saying, but I just, I don't, I don't feel like I used to. And he's like, trust me, just carry the, so he was, he was great in that sense, trying to get me back to being more of a possession guy and not just an energy, chip it in, chase it down type guy. So, oh, yeah. um, but he was great. He was great for me. Um, Let's see, who else did we, I mean, I had Hasek, I had Curtis Joseph, um, both goalies that were just, the, every guy that was in that locker room was just, um, you know, no one put themselves above you. They were all about winning and doing whatever it took to win, and you saw it all the time. 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't just during the games. It was practice and, and, um, and workouts and stuff off ice. So, you know, Brett Hall, Brett Hall is probably the one like free bird, I guess you could say. <laughs> and I, and I, and I loved him and, and, uh, he would, he would, uh, he would give it, give it to me at times if I didn't catch one of his, his hundred mile an hour passes, he would throw <laughs> at you on a two on one. But, um, but I, I thought it was pretty fun. I gave it back to him too. And, um, uh, I think we had a pretty good relationship for when he was there. So, um, but yeah, there's, there's more, they just keep popping at me, but what a, what a team, what a team. We won two president's trophies. They're up in my, right behind me right now, behind my desk. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going anywhere soon. So, um, just great experiences. The only thing we missed out on was, was winning the big one. Right. The, uh, Mike Babcock comes, comes in, I believe your last year, Detroit, oh five, oh six. And, yep. uh, so you had a good relationship with Dave Lewis, obviously we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but what was Mike like as a coach? What was the difference between uh, Mike and, and Dave Lewis? And uh, how did that impact you, if at all? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but this is only because I'm in the, I'm, I'm still in the business. But um, you know, and he probably wouldn't admit it because he does his things the way he does his things, and he has a lot of psycholo- psychology involved and, and whatnot. But uh, he uh, he picked me out as one of his beat down guys from, from day one. And it was hard for me to, to get past it. Um, so Dave Lewis and his staff, um, the complete, the complete opposite, uh, Joey Coaster was there and, um, uh, Barry Smith was there. Um, they were the complete opposite, you know, similar to Trotsy and his crew, you know, just, um, act like professionals, do your job. Um, but Babs was different. He was different and he got to me and he wore me down and, um, eventually it, it was, it was only one year I was with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it didn't work out. And, uh, I mean, I could, I could tell stories, but I'm not going to get into, into too much, but, uh, yeah, it was not a, for some reason he didn't like me and, um, it happens, I guess, but, um, I don't, I wouldn't say I thought it was justified or I did anything wrong to deserve it, but, um, that's hockey and you got to try to fight through it and, and uh, I, he he broke me down. That's the bottom line. So it was a, it was a tough year, and um, and we ended up losing. Um, I think I can't remember if we lost in the first round or second round that year, but that was the end of my uh, Red Wings career after that uh, playoff loss. It was interesting. I have a teenage son who's a basketball player, and we've gone through this whole thing together, his whole basketball life from a very young age. And I, I told him, you know. Sometimes it's just, you, you, there's no necessary rationale behind it. You're just going to end up in a situation where the fit isn't great with you and the coach for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's not a knock on either. And you have to realize that and uh, work through it the best you can and uh, move on if necessary, which you did. And Dave Lewis yeah. ends up in Boston and brings uh, you to the black and gold. So my question is about Dave Lewis, who is a very underrated defenseman when he played the National Hockey League, particularly with the Islanders and and Kings. I was curious what he was like. Obviously, you guys had a good rapport, uh, and I feel like he was a little yeah. underappreciated as a coach, particularly in Boston. Uh, what's your your memory of Dave Lewis and how he impacted you? Yeah, I mean, listen, you're gonna. There's gonna be like you said. There's a lot of people in Boston are going to be listening to this, and I, I I feel bad for Dave only because, and I get it. It's about wins and losses, and and um, I know how fans are, and you want to win. And I mean, but if you peel back 
you know, the pages a little bit or, you know, and look at kind of the situation and look at what happened there. Um, I mean, we had 12 new faces, I believe, 11 or 12 new players, which is a, is a huge task. Okay. Now the other part of that is we had Phil Kessel, very young, very immature. We had Mark Savard, who was a very strong personality, great um, uh, setup guy, one of the best that, that I've ever played with for sure, mm-hmm. but he's a personality. We just had a, we had a lot of new faces and we had some guys that just, it, it, for, it, you know, for Dave, it was difficult because like I said, for Louie liked to just lay out a map and he expected guys to act professional and do, do the job. And um, the mix that we had, not all the guys, but we had some guys that just weren't ready to buy in or, or it just wasn't time you just needed more time for them to, you know, mature and develop and whatnot. It was Chara. It was also Chara's first year as a captain. Um, so, and that that for, that you know, for me looking back, I think he struggled with it too that year, just because he was taking on everything. He, you know, he was he was promised everything, and he was taking on everything. He was running the power plays. Had you know, he's playing 28 minutes a night as far as dealing with the media. He's dealing with, you know, some guys being, you know getting the C in the Jersey, it just doesn't, it's just not, it doesn't happen overnight where it's just smooth and comfortable. So I feel like there was a lot on Z that year. Um, so it was, a, it was just a combination of everything. And, you know, he gets one year to do something and, you know, we, it wasn't like we weren't trying, it just wasn't happening. So, you know, and he's also a guy that puts a lot of, um, puts a lot of faith in his assistants as well. Um, they run a lot of, a lot of, you know, one has the power play, one has PK, whatnot, you know? So, and uh, I remember talking to him after and I, I questioned him about that. I said, if you were ever head coach again in the NHL or wherever, like, would you take more responsibility of what we were doing system wise and, and this and that, because ultimately who gets their head cut off? It's the head coach. So, right. Right. You better make, you better really make sure that your assistants are doing a good job or at least have the same mentality or mindset of how you want to do things. So, um, but I get it to the fans out there. I do understand, but I, the guy, he did get, um, he didn't get a fair shake in my opinion. And, um, it just was uh, a combination of, uh, personnel and timing and, and all that stuff. But right. uh, what a, he's a great guy and he, he deserves his, his image deserves to be better in my opinion. Like you said, not only as a player, but, um, you know, I, I feel like he has a, you know, he's got a black mark next to his name now just because of the way his head coaching uh, experience went in Boston. Right. It was uh, it was a shame. And I remember him, again, as a player. He was a real gamer. And he ended up missing out on the Islander dynasty. Uh, it was traded at the uh, trading deadline of, the, of their first Stanley Cup. But um, nonetheless, I always uh, liked Dave Lewis, and I, I'm glad you were able to share your thoughts on him. And I I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on a young kid who's on that team now. It's 13 years later, Patrice Bergeron. And <laughs> what did you see in him then? And is it any surprise to you he's gone on to the, the Hall of Fame caliber of career that he's had? Uh, no, not really. I mean, it, it was early. It was really early. Um, you know, but the thing that stuck out with me once again was, I mean, well, there's two things. One, just how humble he was. Um I'm trying to think of someone in Detroit that was similar like that. It was maybe, maybe like a Datsuk or Zetterberg that I played with. Just humble guys that they just come to work. And if you watch them closely, it's amazing just their their details and and how they whether it's taping their stick or 
whether it's how they take face-offs and their, their small little bursts of intensity that they have when they have to win a puck or so that, that part of it jumped on me right away, but you know, on the ice, you know, looking back and, um, once again, they, he wasn't a big guy. He wasn't a big guy at all. Like, uh, probably skinnier than I was at the time, but just the strength that he had, like it was like a, a strange natural strength that he had to uh, not only win win battles, but like get in position and stay on his feet to um, to create even the opportunity to win the puck. So those those things are what stood out to me as just a smaller guy how he could how he could uh, you know fend off bigger guys and and uh, not get pushed around. Where I, for me that was more of a challenge, um, just because I would you know a lighter lower half and and his lower half was was sturdier and, and stronger. So. But as a player and as a teammate, you know, it's hard to look at him and say, wow, this guy's going to be a Hall of Famer. I wouldn't have said that I would have, you know, he wasn't that type of guy that, you know, was high-end skill moves and and this and that where you'd say, like Datsuk, you know, but but just the the way he played the game at both ends, I did see that. And and you could tell he was going to play for a long time. Would I have said he would have done what he's done? I can't say that for sure, but... uh, I'm certainly I'm certainly glad that he has because he's a, he's such a humble competitor and um, just a fantastic hockey player and even as I watch him now as a scout I'm like man his his skating you just it's it's crazy how his skating is <laughs> it's average I guess you could say right. um, but it doesn't matter because his brain is way ahead of everybody else's and that's really all that matters. An interesting perspective, but it must be still interesting for you, as I said, 13 years after you completed your Bruins career, to be able to go to a game and still see two of your teammates, uh, Chara and Bergeron, still uh, <laughs> key factors in the Bruins team. So you're still connected to the, the yeah, current no, day Bruins. Fun. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately, they've you know they've been injured a couple times together, and they've they've come up to the ninth floor where we watch the game. So I've gotten to chat with them a little bit. So <laughs> um, it's nice to, it's nice to know that that. They become uh, legends in Boston. They still kind of remember me, so that's that was nice. That's <laughs> awesome. That's tremendous. So, you know, no, good guys. absolutely. So after a brief stop in Anaheim, I can't tell you that I, I know a lot about Swiss hockey, uh, hockey in Switzerland, where you uh, went on to uh, have a great second career, a pro career in, in Swiss hockey. I don't know much about it. Uh, could you tell a little bit about the, the four years that you spent uh, playing in Swiss hockey after leaving the Anaheim Mighty Ducks? Or I should say yeah, the so the, Ducks. Uh, yeah, no, the, the, uh, I got a taste of Swiss hockey in the 2004 lockout. That's kind of how I even knew about what it was. Um, guys were playing everywhere. I don't know if you remember, but oh, yeah. guys were playing every, every league they could find. So I had a good stretch. I had a good month to finish the season over in a team in Switzerland, um, a really good stretch. I don't, I don't know how it happened, but kind of just kept going. And mm-hmm. so... Uh, fast forward, I get to Anaheim, I get traded to Anaheim and Randy Carlisle is the coach and um, same kind of thing. It just didn't, didn't work out. I just wasn't, I couldn't, I, I couldn't produce. I just, I, I kind of lost that part of my game and it just, uh, they, they put me on waivers. They were going to send me to Portland, Maine. And I said, listen, you know, I think this is the end uh, in my mind. It's the end. You know, would you mind if I explore uh, getting over to Europe they agreed. One thing led to another. Signed one year, and then signed a three-year deal um, with with the original team that I played with back in 2004. Um, but to answer your question, and you, I, you know, if you look up, I mean, you could go on the teams now, and you'll see 
plenty of North American guys that are playing for the 12, I think there's 12 teams in the uh, Swiss A League. Mm-hmm. Um, it's become, it's become, you know, unless you want to go to the KHL and, and make uh, as good of money as you're making in the NHL, um, it's probably, I would say, the second choice for guys going over to Europe. Um, they pay, they pay pretty well. Um, and the experience is unbelievable. The, uh, every building is packed. Um, half of the building is standing the whole game chanting. Like it's just like, it's just like a European, uh, football game, soccer game. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm th- I think the regulations have maybe changed a little bit since I was there, um, in 2011. But when I tell you there was, um, smoke bombs and fireworks going off, like in between periods and I'm not, it's not no joke. Uh, there were there was one time an M80 or something must have went off because uh, I thought the whole building was going to collapse. We were in the locker room. <laughs> I thought the whole I thought we were it was over, and that was and uh, they were like, oh no, don't worry about it. It's just uh, just a heavy explosive, but it, no one will get hurt. They put it in a safe. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, but anyways, it's uh, it really is a great place to play. You play on weekends for the most part. Um, you're in your you're in your own bed most nights. Uh, the longest bus ride is about three and a half hours. Um, and they're passionate. They are really passionate fans. Um, I would suggest anybody that um, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest taking a flight over and watch a game, but just pull up some YouTube videos of some of the games over there. It's, uh, you'll be shocked at the, um, the fan base and in all the arenas and how crazy they are. Um, it was a great, great experience. Got to bring my kids over. So they got to, to see Europe a little bit too. So, all in all, it was a great uh, finish to my career. Uh, was your family with you when you were playing in Switzerland? Yeah, during the lockout, they didn't come because it was only a month. But then, yes, they came. Uh, I mean, we just they just moved out to Anaheim, actually. <laughs> moved out to Anaheim. We found a place. We were there for about a month. And then um, I went over to Switzerland and eventually got them over, I think, after Christmas, something like that, and um, put, them in, put them in an English school. You can do whatever. You can choose put them into German school, French school. Uh, we chose to just put them in English school because I didn't know how long I was going to play over there. But right. um, looking back, if I knew it was going to be four years, I probably I probably would have uh, put them in a German school. Right. Well, but, either way, an interesting life experience. And you embark on another one as well, which you're currently still in. You become a, uh, a National Hockey League scout for Montreal, uh, then Buffalo, and then Minnesota. How did that all start and... How did you develop an interest to make that initial contact and get that part of your career started? Uh, yeah, so I guess the, it was 2011. I hung them up, and, and to be honest, in my mind, I thought I was going to try to get away from hockey and just see if I enjoyed something else. Um, and that lasted, I think, about five weeks. And I, mm-hmm. and I said, I don't, what am I going to do? You know, like I just don't – I can't see me, you know, selling insurance or anything. I, I just – so I, I started up a couple of like training programs with young kids and I got the gig uh, with Nesson to do the uh, in between periods at the Bruins games that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had a couple other jobs. Oh yeah. I started a small agency to try to get players from the U S over to, to Europe. So I right away, it kind of all went back to hockey and that following spring, I reached out to some, just some people I knew, uh, Tommy Fitzgerald being one of them because he was in management and, and a few others that were still, in, you know, that, or that were in the business, just saying that I, you know, I'd have some interest getting back in the NHL if something opens up. And um, 
and you know how networking is these days. Oh, yeah. uh, Scott Mellonby reached out to Tommy Fitzgerald and said, hey, do you know anybody in the East that's looking to get into scouting? And um, a couple phone interviews, and I was working for Montreal as a pro scout. So it's kind of how it it's kind of how it panned out and uh, stayed with them for five years. Uh, just thought I needed a change, a chance maybe to move up the ladder a little bit and didn't see it happening there. So I moved on to Buffalo. I uh, was with Buffalo the last two years. Um, and then now I'm with Minnesota. Um, this will be my first year with Minnesota and, uh, kind of the same role, but it's, it's fun. It's, it's interesting. And you're always trying to, to figure out if there's a science to this whole thing, but I, I'm not so sure there is, like you said earlier, there's luck and injuries and, uh, bounces of the puck. So it's, uh, it's a crazy business, but, um, but I enjoy it. Right. And you have a lot of credibility, as you said, uh, you know, not only, playing in the National Hockey League, but maybe not having things handed to you. So you're fully aware of the, of the struggles involved. At the same time, you've played with some of the greatest players in the history of hockey and yourself at the, at the highest level. Uh, just real uh, quick as we, as we get to the end of our discussion here today is what is the – you can talk a little bit about your scouting role with Minnesota. So what would you typically be doing uh, during the season as far as travel? Sometimes I know that could be a little bit tough, but uh, what, what, what is your role like coaching for the, uh, excuse me, scouting for the wild? So the, in the, you know, to lay it out pretty simple, the, the job is to, is to have, to start and have a book on, on, on your players. Um, now every team does it a little different. Um, the teams I've been with, including Minnesota, you, you, you have designated teams, um, and you're, it's your job to know those teams inside and out and basically just keep notes and, um, write reports and file them and send them into the, uh, the main office and whatnot. But, you know, when you're called upon, you need to know if this guy's better than that guy. You need to know if Patrice Bergeron skating is ever going to fall off. Uh-huh. Um, that, that type of stuff, like where guys are in their career, um, you know, everybody knows the best players. Everybody knows um, the guys that have, you know, haven't made it or they struggle to make it. Um, it's those little details in between. I think are the most important as you've seen over the last say six to eight years, these big contracts at five year deals at whatever amount of money. And then the, the next year their their game is just, it's uh, declining, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, our job to try to pinpoint this thing and 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 not make those mistakes because those are the contracts that um that end up hurting you and, and you can't get out of them so right um that's that's the that's the big uh that's kind of what the role is um as far as the schedule i would say it's it's 18 to 22 games a month something like that um a lot of hotels a lot of trains planes uh ubers and lifts it's, uh, you know, you got, if you don't like to travel, it certainly isn't, is not, uh, the job you want to get into, but, mm-hmm. uh, I like traveling and, and, uh, like I said before, I like trying to figure this whole thing out, even if there is no real answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, in addition to your travels and your work as a pro scout, you also, uh, find time to play charity hockey games with the Boston Bruins alumni. And it seems like you have a lot of fun out there. You're one of the kids, you're one of the, the, uh, the young guys on the team. But it's got to be a lot of fun to uh, put on the skates and play with guys like Terry O'Reilly, guys who played in the league before you were born in many mm-hmm. cases. Terry O'Reilly, Rick Middleton, uh, of course, Ray Bork, etc. Talk a little bit about that experience playing for the Boston Bruins alumni. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I going back to the comment I made about being in the Detroit locker room, it's it's a very similar uh, – it's a little different because I'm not looking at them to see how they prepare and what they do, but uh, it is it is so much fun interacting with these guys and, and just talking about life and, and just random, random stuff. And um, I can't – I'm so grateful that I was – you know, I eventually got in. I don't – it took me a while to get in. I don't know I, – I still can't figure out what happened, but I, I put it on the fact that uh, – and I was scouting with Montreal, and they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't allow me to play while I was working for Montreal. Yeah, but that would do it because right when I moved to, to scout with Buffalo, I got the call and I, and I got the invite to training camp. So, but anyways, uh, it's been a blast, and I, I love playing with those guys. And and, um, and and even afterwards, when we hang out, like I said, just just picking up on stories and, and joking around because that's I think most of the uh, uh, like Nifty and you know some of the older guys that that are still doing it. I think that's one of the things that they would probably say they like the most as well is and something you miss the most is just having, having that locker room banter and, and uh, cracking jokes and pranks on each other. So it's, it's been awesome. And I hope I can continue doing it because it's, uh, it's uh, when you, when you leave the game, it's, it's fun to go back in the rinks and scout, but there's nothing like being a player and, um, and being part again. And, and you, you kind of get, uh, you know, I get I get excited when I get to go to the games. I really do. That's great. Well, we really enjoy seeing you out there and we'll look forward to seeing you uh, at an alumni event soon. But in the meantime, really appreciate having the chance to talk to you. have been trying to get together between your, your scouting trips. So I appreciate you uh, squeezing me in here and um, thanks. And we'll look forward to seeing you uh, uh, on the ice very soon. Sounds good. I thanks. really appreciate having me. The Boston Bruins have the most robust alumni organization in the NHL with over 35 charity games and dozens of other charity events each year. Leading the way off the ice is John Horgan, who serves as the voice of the Bruins alumni, master of ceremonies, on-site coordinator, and so much more. John's also a professional historian who has won five Boston New England Emmy Awards as the writer and host of the historical show The Folklorists. And yes, he's also the voice at the beginning of this podcast, introducing yours truly. John is a fun and interesting guy, and you'll enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at the Boston Bruins alumni. We're back on the show with one of my favorite people, John Horrigan, the voice of the Boston Bruins alumni, a legend in the world of the Boston Bruins. John, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you, Mark, for finding the time to speak with me. <laughs> I'll tell you, John is a colorful individual, never dull. You know, I've known him for about five or six years now, and uh, he's always interesting, always on the move, and his mind is going a million miles a minute. But if you are familiar with the Boston Bruins alumni, probably the most robust alumni, if not just in the National Hockey League, maybe in all of professional sports with a minimum of 35 charity games in the New England area every year and uh, outside the area as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. But, John, how did you – you've had a long career, as we talked about in the uh, in the Open, but how did you get started with the Boston Bruins alumni? Okay, so um, I was a seasoned cable TV announcer for several high schools throughout the 80s. And in 1993 at the Portland Civic Center, or whatever it's called today, um, I sat in for a, um, a Boston Bruins. It was done by a promoter, so I, I used to call those scat games. But I sat in there, and 
And I guess I've been filling in for the next guy <laughs> over the last, uh, what is it, 26, 27 years. And uh, I officially went on board with the Boston Bruins alumni in 2005. Bob Sweeney um, brought me in swoop. He's now the president of the Boston Bruins Foundation. Um, Brad Park uh, was instrumental in my career in terms of letting me do be a Bruin and just uh, just listening to the man speak about the game of hockey. So he was a mentor. Uh, Cleon Daskalakis, former goaltender, Boston University, um, had a lot to do with my career. I used to do uh, Bruins softball games with him, basketball games. We even did a soccer game with the Bruins alumni. Uh, it's not the Bruins alumni, but a Bruins, black and gold legends, etc. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I, I want to certainly um, uh, salute uh, some other guys that have helped me out. Terry O'Reilly's been very, very helpful in my career in terms of um, you know, Tommy Songen. Uh, all those guys were instrumental in giving me at bats. Raymond Bork recently with Raymond doing you know, touring across North America, and of course uh, Nifty mm-hmm. uh, Rick Middleton, who's the best boss that anybody could ever have. So I did account um, in terms of how many pro games I've done, and I'm up over I think uh, 1,700. So with all, all, I know I've done over 3,300 professional events, but uh, about 1,700 hockey games, and. Um, Essentially, my role is, as you see me, I go nuts. There's, there's three of us. Don't feed the animal. I'd like to put that on, on the booth when I, when I go to a game. But um, you know, meeting all these ex-Bruins, they become my best friends. And you know, when I first did this, I was like, oh wow, the Boston Bruins alumni, you know, legends. Da, 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 da. And then there was a time where, where I, you know, I did it, you know, for the dough. And but now it's just I want to just hang out with my friends, the greatest friends any man could possibly want to have in their life they're truly wonderful people and their wives their daughters their sons so I, i've been very very blessed to work with the boston bruins um family and uh, all that they've done for me uh, throughout the years uh, very lucky well you can certainly see that and i've obviously had that experience firsthand over the last five or six years being welcomed into the Bruins alumni fold and obviously for the reasons you just stated uh, I've really enjoyed it and continue to do it but for yourself obviously this is a real commitment now earlier in my career I've worked with Hall of Fame broadcasters uh, guys like Chuck Caton in Hartford uh, Mike Lang in Pittsburgh uh, Rick Peckham TV voice of the Whalers and Tampa, wow. Tampa Bay Lightning, of course. And, you know, uh, the unheralded Bob the Hawk Crawford uh, uh, down in Hartford with the Wolf Pack. And they all had one thing in common, which they share with you, uh, among other things, and deep knowledge and love and passion for the game, but also the preparation uh, and your uncanny ability. This is so important. When these groups come in and they play the Bruins alumni, it's a, you know, it's a big event for, for the teams who are, who are opposing the Bruins alumni. It's a big deal, and you know all those guys up and down the roster. You're able to introduce them and talk about them, you know, fluently during the game. Uh, talk a little bit about the preparation, what goes into uh, being the master of ceremonies and the voice of the the Bruins alumni during one of their uh, exhibition games. What an insightful question! Wow, um, you're right. Preparation. I'm, I'm 58 and a half. I've been announcing hockey now since I was 20. 
Um, so it's I, I get there 90 minutes before the game. If the Bruins have a game on the moon tomorrow night at 7, I'll be there at 5.30. Um, I'd like to even get there earlier. I'd rather wait around than uh, rush. But I uh, basically get there. I coordinate the event on site with the event coordinator from the charity side. Where's your roster? Um, put the numbers down. I, I've timed myself. The best I've ever done with 20 names numbers was uh, 7 minutes and 40, 40 seconds I, that I memorized where I walked outside, walk around the arena, and then I have it memorized. So, And then when they come out on their pre-skate, and this is the visiting team I'm talking about, not the Bruins. I know them by sight, and I hang out with them. I can identify them 10 different ways to Sunday. It's And they carry the puck 60% of the time right so um I, I don't have to worry about that but the other team then i look at indicators the pre-skate right before we start the intros okay he's got a mustache what's it, what color gloves do you have what do you, what's his stick what are his skates, skates look like? i'm just looking for three indicators that are non-numerical um so i can identify them and then positional who who's he on the line with um who's going to skate with normally those lines the guys don't know until the game is in the flow so then i can get the line pairings but i'll go out at the intermission do a quick memorization again Go over my notes. I'm, I'm doing statistics. I'm tabulating shots on goal. I'm scoring the game. What's the time of the goal? Um, I'm also playing music and running the scoreboard mostly. Um, but I, I prefer um, to be work larger barns where I don't have to do the music anymore. It's getting old for me. My shows, I'm, I'm lost in jock, jock rock, but this past trip, for instance, I had pro sound guys, and that takes the burden off of me and not running the scoreboard. But I can do it all. If, if we go, we've gone to these remote rinks in, in Labrador where they just have a, a, a rink and a, a, a simple PA system where I have to do it all, you know, run the whole show start to finish, and that's my forte. Um, but uh, in terms of making the game about the people we're playing, right? So those guys, if they're firefighters, they're just trying to raise money for a civic organization or for charity or for tragedy. I want to make those guys and, and girls feel like kings and queens in front of their families, their their husbands, their wives, their kids, their grandparents, their friends. And I'll throw some comedy in too. And, um, you know, I never went to the big leagues, Mark, because, uh, you know, I, I like to say for everyone that makes it 99, don't be the top of the 99. But uh, mm-hmm. in terms of hockey, uh, the guys, you were talking about some great radio voices and seasoned guys. Um, I don't think I could ever achieve that level, but I took the play-by-play uh, narrative into a live arena and nobody else does what I do or so I've been told across Canada and the United States so so I, I've been very very blessed but it is preparation and always checking your notes and um, it's I get maniacal and I have high blood pressure and my doctor <laughs> went to one of my games and he says I'm surprised you didn't die during uh, one of those games and says I'm going to have to up your, up, up your pills for your high blood pressure medicine so I only have one goal when I'm at the Bruins alumni games. That is to stay out of John's way. Do not interfere because you can't overstate the amount of dexterity it takes to, when we went to the NHL alumni program, for example, just sitting down there while you're in the penalty box and you're conversing with players on both teams, you're in charge of the music, you're doing all the announcing, all the master of ceremonies things, and doing them all simultaneously. So if you're a fan and you're watching an event like that, it's you think you have the same experience as you would if there were three or four people working it. You don't know that it's often a, a one-person operation. But <clears throat> speaking of that, John, you've had the opportunity to take, I'm a little bit envious, I'll be honest with you, some great NHL alumni tour trips all over the place, uh, particularly to Canada. And most recently, you were in British Columbia. Now, the thing I love about it is that you can see the 
uh, great appreciation that the the folks have uh, when they welcome you guys and Bruins Nation extending uh, throughout North America. Talk a little bit. First of all, your most recent trip, which was to British Columbia and catching up with some old faces from the Boston Bruins alumni. Yeah, um, well, you're right. Uh, well, this past trip, we went out to British Columbia, and um, we're recording this interview first week, October 2019. But we visited uh, Victoria, Vancouver Island, and then we went north to a place called Campbell River. And it's amazing how the black and gold, the spoke bee, goes from the north to the south pole. You know, it's just uh, all the way up. And but it goes east and west as well to both coasts because these people. It was a an outdoor event at Victoria where we did the sign and uh, autograph introduced the players. It was a tailgate, mm-hmm. and then they went inside and signed at Victoria. It had been raining the whole time we were there, except the sun parted for a beautiful three hours for us to get that in, which was great. And um, then we played uh, at the arena uh, at the uh, the, Brind- the uh, Rod Brendamore Arena. And uh, had a fantastic game. It's great. Canadian people, I love Canadian people. I would one day like to emigrate there or live there. I will tell you that because I've been all across Canada with the Bruins alumni. We played every province with the exception of Yukon and the Northwest Territories Mm -hmm. and uh, none of it. Um, But we went to BC. We've been to Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, um, Ontario, uh, Quebec, uh, Labrador, Newfoundland, Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and assorted islands off the Atlantic coast. And that's courtesy of, of you know, Rick Middleton working with Steve Walton, who's a promoter um, in New Brunswick. And it, it's been a magical time. So anyways, we got to our Victoria. We flew out of Boston, Chicago, uh, to Calgary and then Calgary, I got next to a guy in one of those small planes. I was, I have a neck injury from kayaking this summer and I was like curled up like a ball. I'm still in pain. So we landed touchdown and, uh, you know, the jet lag, it, it's, it's a little longer than a regular West coast trip. And, um, that night we went out and, uh, Ray and I sang with the band. <laughs> I sang cinnamon girl and Ray sang Eric Clapton. Mm-hmm. And then the next day we had the game and it was great. Um, Fans loved it. Um, the after party in this beautiful place called Bear Lodge. Uh, and then uh, we bugged out the next morning and had a matinee at Campbell River. So we left early and got there about noon, checking the hotel on the bus, autograph session, play the game. And Campbell River was nice because a guy by the name of Troy Robley pulled us together. And uh, the people, you know, they turn the lights down. I do my intros and then they do the uh, American and then the Canadian anthem. And I posted that on the Bruins alumni Facebook page, I believe, of the crowd singing the Canadian national anthem. Mm -hmm. Wonderful time. It was one, one through two periods. I had never out of all those games. I'd never seen a one, one game. And, um, and then we just blew it open and we had some ex Bruins, uh, which is great. And that's another thing. When we go out to these um, remote areas or, or areas that I consider remote no more, um, when you meet the players from around there that have ties to the Bruins and we had Brad Palmer, for instance, he couldn't play, he had an injury, but he spent a year, I think 82, 83 with the Bruins and he caught up with Ray. He, he was a first round draft at Minnesota and had 22 goals the previous year. And then he went on to play in Europe. We had Mo LeMay. Mo won a cup with the Oilers in 87, longtime Vancouver Canuck, uh, including the 21-goal season. And then he came to the Bruins. It was the 88 Stanley Cup finalist. And then he went to play in Europe. Good guy. And then uh, also, I, we had Mo, Larry, and Jeff. Uh, Larry <laughs> Melnick, 10 years in the league, I think three with Boston. Um, he won 
I, I give him credit for two Stanley Cups. He got his name on one about, uh, for 85, but he didn't get on the 84 Edmonton Cup. And um, and let me go back to that. I'll make sure, because the Richard Sevigny rule, I might as well tell you, no Richard Sevigny, the goaltender of the Montreal Canadiens, he dressed uh, for the Stanley Cup Finals one game because Bunny Larock uh, tweaked his groin. Never played a regular season game in 1779. Got his name on the cup. Mm-hmm. Guys like Don Ori, who played 72 games in 76, didn't get his name on the cup, and nor did Larry. So, anyways, Larry, <laughs> tough guy, as you know, but it was good seeing him. And then finally, um, Jeff Courtnall. Uh, Courts, if you look at his stats over 17 years, uh, over 1,200 games, over 400 goals, you know, five-time 30-goal scorer, had a 42-goal season with Washington. Um, cup winner, um, 88. You know, we had to play against him. Good guy, still had the Jets. He was the one racking up the points. And then afterwards, you know, um, the, 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 the hockey players, their job is to play hockey, sign autographs, take selfies, and drink beer, right? And so that's, that's an easy life, and, and I've been very, very blessed. So blessed, Mark. I mean, but the long bus rides, oh, they're so horrible. You drive four hours, then you stop for lunch, and then you nap, and you listen to music, and you read your book. Oh, it's just it's a terrible <laughs> life. I mean, it's it's glorious, and I'm very, very blessed. And my wife has been uh, so patient with me. She married a circus clown and uh, <laughs> allowed me to go on these trips along with my work. And um, I like it because it's literally where a show we can plug and play anywhere on the face of the earth. I like to call the Boston Bruins alumni the greatest hockey show on earth. But it was a wonderful time. Sure looked like it. And again, all for charity and the appreciation and heartfelt passion the fans have in some of these very remote areas uh, for, as you said, that the smoke bee and the players who wore it and the, the whole uh, family is uh, is quite uh, heartening. You know, in addition to Bruins alumni, you've also taken some interesting trips with NHL alumni, um, including the Toronto Maple Leafs and uh, Montreal Canadiens. I was curious about if you had an opportunity to uh, meet one guy I was interested in getting a little feel for what he was like off the ice is Guy Lafleur. Did you have a chance to meet him on uh, any of your trips? Oh, absolutely. I did a tour with him and Steve Shot, um, speaking tour, you know, we introduced him. I've done games where he was the celebrity coach. Got to sit with him. What a marvelous guy. Class act. Uh, he's the best. In fact, he just recently had, I, I believe, quadruple bypass surgery. So everyone loves the flower. The flower is one of the greatest players ever to play. And I like to say, you know, if it's a Hall of Fame uh, hockey player, usually it's a Hall of Fame man, and that goes with the flower, it goes great. Um, but he's uh, such a great player and just talking to him about when he came out of retirement and then played with the Rangers and the Nordiques, you know, people, he's, he's a little uncomfortable talking about that. You know, it's all about the cups and with the Habs, but uh, a fascinating guy was a helicopter pilot. Um, I was very, very blessed to tour with him and, and shot a Steve shot. So, yeah. Let me, you've had a, uh, you obviously encyclopedic, if there's such a thing as an encyclopedia, a Google-esque uh, memory retention of, of hockey, but I was curious, just as a fan, looking back uh, before you even worked for the Bruins alumni, what was your favorite hockey memory as related to the Boston Bruins? Okay, um, let me back up on that because I'm going to come out. I never played organized hockey except as a peewee. Um, I don't know the game. I don't watch the game. I just announce the game. That's what I tell the guys <laughs> at the end of the game when they get on me. Um, and uh, my earliest Boston Bruins memory. Okay, here's one for you. It's uh, the 
869 season. So no, it's a 69-70 season. I'm, I have my three brothers. So I think three of them lived in. Um, we were sleeping together, triple bunk beds. And I hear on the radio, 1969-97. It's November. Okay, I hear on the radio the Bruins at the intermission. I, I used to listen to them, and I was eight years old at the time. Now, how many guys did they get on the ice? Because they're announcing, the hockey announcers announcing. How many guys did they get on there? Boy, you know, Stanfield, Mackenzie, Esposito, or, you know, I didn't understand the concept of line changes because mm-hmm. yeah. um, we, we couldn't get 38, TV 38 back then. Yeah. And I remember them, them breaking in and uh, talking about a sea monster that allegedly washed up on the beach in Situate. For some reason, that sticks out. And, and years later, I, I actually examined a, a portion of that from a marine archaeologist. Uh, Biologist. That's one of my earliest ones. I will re, um, remember one 2011 on June 1st, 2011, game one of the Stanley Cup finals. Bruins on their way against when their tornado hit uh, in Western Massachusetts. And a friend of oh, mine yeah, from right. Monson, I just decided to call him. And I said, Well, you're going to watch the game. He said, I'm going to listen to it. I said, Oh, okay. And I, yeah, my new home. And I said, What? My car. You know, he lost his home. So, I mean, yeah, I can remember. I remember that day because I was working in Hartford, American Hockey League at that point, and uh, heard the weather reports. I decided to drive home, try to get out ahead of it, and I, I did, but I remember stopping at the rest stop in Sturbridge, Massachusetts, and seeing the, the sky go completely dark, and I raced home, but the next day, driving back, it uh, the damage that the tornado did in that area, and it was in Sturbridge. Like there's there's a little league field that my my son used to play at, and tournament things like that to get completely wiped out. I mean, all the trees around it, everything really? was completely wiped out. But that's wow. what I remember about that day. But uh, but nonetheless, one uh, we have a game coming up. We just what? talked with with Frank Simonetti. Can I give you? Yeah, can I give you one more memory though? In this, yes, we're absolutely. still asked about this today, and mm-hmm. this dovetails nicely into what what you're about to talk about about Frank. The one that I remember most, and I remember um, I was in high school at the time, and um, you know the smart girls watched the Bruins with the guys, right? They're still we're still friends today. The other girls stayed in the kitchen, but the smart ones came out, and I'll see them in my reunion. But when the uh, Boston Bruins. At the end of the game against the New York Rangers in Madison Square Garden, they had to go up in the stands. Terry went after a guy because they grabbed a stick. You know, Milbury um, slapped him around with 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 his with the sand or whatever it mm-hmm. was. Uh, Tommy Songen was there. Nifty was in, in that game. Yeah, um, that's probably the most memorable moment, and it doesn't even have anything to do with hockey. It was off the ice. It was, and for myself, I shared that, and it was I had a unique experience. It was during college break. And I went to a bar with my friends in the in that night. Uh, towards the end of the game, a pub called Casey's Pub in Worcester, Massachusetts. We walk in now. Back in those days, a big screen TV was still a novelty. And we walk in. We're there for a few minutes. And I look at the screen. The game's ending, and all of a sudden, this chaos breaks out. And honestly. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. The whole place just erupted. It's on the big screen, and the guys are in the stands. I can't even believe what I'm watching. <laughs> it's like it was just what I, that would just would stick with me forever. Forty years now, and I remember it like it was yesterday. It was just uh, it was just incredible. And of course, those type of things you don't see anymore. But back in those days, it was quite an event for a 18 year old. <laughs> Uh, in, uh, in Massachusetts, the um, but I, I did want to, you know, again that leads into 
just, uh, you know, we, we talked to Frank a little bit about the Warrior for, Li- for Life Foundation, but what an event that we have coming up at Babson College at the end of October on the 26th. New York Rangers will be in town for the first of a uh, two-game uh, set, and that game will be uh, in Waltham at Bentley College. But among the people who are going to be there, not all, not all playing, um, not all playing, but you'll have the legends, Hall of Fame legends like Roger Baird, Jean Rattel, Brad Park. Uh, the gag line, goal of game line will be reunited, um, at least um, in in their personage, not on not on the skates. <laughs> personage is not a word, but anyway. But with Hatfield, uh, Gilbert, and Rattel there, a lot of guys played on both teams. I think there's about seven or eight guys who played on, on both the Rangers uh, and the Bruins in that one. But that's going to be an exciting event for yourself, a uh, little out of the ordinary, and uh, I'm sure you're looking forward to that as well. Yeah, I'll probably get a healthy scratch at Madison Square Garden, or so I'm expecting. Sometimes the big barns, they go with the house guy, he's union or whatever. Um, it's a home and home, as you mentioned. Uh, it's it's the uh, one o'clock start Saturday, October twenty sixth at the Bentley Arena in Waltham, Massachusetts. Beautiful new arena. The staff there are awesome. And it's the inaugural alumni classic face off for heroes, and it supports the Boston Bruins Foundation, which supports uh, children's charities and other charities throughout New England. They, millions of dollars they give away, and they the, that's Bob Sweeney's baby, and and they've extended so much help to other people. And then the other one is the Warrior for Life Foundation or the Warrior for Life Fund, which supports programs and infrastructure that help military families from all service branches cope with the unique challenges of combat, uh, extended deployments, uh, disabilities, and and the long-lasting effects of war through the game of hockey. So uh, that's a synopsis of it. And uh, it's we're going to get actually some of the Navy, I understand, may have some Navy. These are Navy SEALs, of course, that we're dealing with. They're out of, um, of Virginia. And Frank Simonetti, let me back up on Frank now. So Frank's been with the Boston Bruins alumni uh, you know, basically since our inception, four years in the NHL, um, Hall of Fame at Norwich University, soccer and hockey. He's uh, such a brilliant mind in terms of putting these things together. He's done bowl with the Bruin over the last few years, which is a golden event off season. Um, just a fun event and has nothing to do with hockey except the guys. And uh, mm-hmm. he and uh, his wife Maria, just the way that they coordinate things is spectacular. Yes. Um, so this one's at one o'clock at Bentley. Um, and it's going to be good. And you mentioned some of the names of the Rangers. And, you know, let's let's give a shout-out to the New York Rangers. I mean, there's always been a rivalry. Obviously, the Jockerman and uh, uh, Turk Sanderson incidents, you know, and they, they allegedly jumped him, but I thought Turk deserved it because he was looking for it. And if you look at the film of it, he knew it was coming, and he did well on it, and he kind of had a smile on his face. So, um, But the Rangers were, were founded in 1926 by Tex Rickard. Uh, obviously, original six. Um, you know, the, the last cup that they won um, was 94. Um, they've had so many great players that have, that have dressed for them and played in the great Madison Square Gardens. And uh, the you mentioned some of the other names there, which I thought was pretty cool in terms of um, uh, that will be playing. Like on their side, Glenn Anderson, six cups. Dave Maloney's coach, you said Vic Hadfield, uh, Gilbert Rattel, Brian Mullen, Joey's playing on our side, Brian on the other <laughs> side, Hell's Kitchen Boys brothers. It's that's a, that's a rarity in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Graves, Brad Richards, uh, one of my all-time favorite athletes, the coolest guy you'll meet. Uh, and philosophically, he takes me to a higher level. Uh, uh, Ron Duguay, uh, Colt Knorr, former Bruin, <clears throat> Stefan Matteau, Tanner Glass. 
some Navy guest skaters and a congressman, Brian Leach, Hall of Fame, Bruin, <clears throat> Jeff Bukaboom and uh, Jay Wells. I got to tour with Jay a couple of months back, Tom Laidlaw, et cetera, and then their goalie, Steve Alquette. So that's a good Ranger team we're playing. It's a good team. Yeah, good team. And we, uh, we've, we're countering with some good young talent as well. So it looks like it's going to be a, a fast-paced event as well. Did you say young? <laughs> Relative. We've got uh, Mike Mata. we got Dan Lacatour. Yep. Yeah, Lackey. Lackey's been touring us with us. He's a great addition. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have um, Nifty and Joey Mullen Hall of Fame. Um, Ray's going to play. So we get uh, two Hall of Famers on our team. Um, and they get two with Glenn and, and Brian. Actually, they get four if you count Ratty and uh, Jill Bear. Um, and then we got, you know, Tommy Songen, the Bruins alumni, all time leading scorer. Um, if you didn't know that, he will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he's, he's always been, he was a point of game. He had a streak for points or a goal streak of up over 120. I remember that because I was charting it. Mm-hmm. And then guys like Andrew Alberts, Frank, of course, uh, David Shaw. Shaw's he's one of the best. And he's got that dry sense of humor. Um, Bobby Beers from the radio. Um, Ally Afraidy, Big Al, Planned of Al. Um, you know, four all-star games. Three times you get the hardest shot with the wooden stick. Um, Razor, Andrew Raycroft, you see him on Nesson. He's going to be the goaltender, reluctantly. I mean, he beat the um, he and Reggie Lemelin beat the uh, Canadians outdoors at the Winter Classic in Gillette Stadium on December 31st, 2015, which was outstanding. But he, And he did also, when we did the Habs versus the Bruins, we did a tour of three provinces of Canada a couple of years ago, and he was there. And then you got Reggie, you got Swoop, Kenny Linsman, Always still quick on the draw. Bruce Crowder, Chow. He's an old battle wagon. Some of the injuries had puck finds him, but he's, he still can play and he'll play center right wing. Kenny Hodge Jr. coming back from a knee injury. Another guy, D.C. boy, plays well. Uh, Mark Mowers, versatile forward, always with a smile on his face. Quick. Uh, Stevie Leach, uh, uh, hopefully, um, will be with us too. He's been a long-time Bruins alumni guy. So in Ray, of course. So uh, it's, it's going to be good with some uh, Navy guest skaters. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I've done games like this in arenas like that before, so I have no apprehension. I think in the Madison Square Garden, you know, they, they're going to probably defer to their PA guy. They're not going to play-by-play, or so I don't think. But it'll be great, um, and we're going to be staying down there and taking the Bruins-Rangers game uh, in addition to playing the Rangers down at, uh, in New York. So uh, it, it's, good. it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, folks can get tickets online. I know you're going to talk with Frank and give you more details, but it's Face Off for Heroes, uh, Boston Bruins alumni versus New York Rangers alumni, Bentley University, and it's uh, it's it's Warrior for Life Fund. And if you Google any of that, they'll be able to find it, or just go to uh, uh, WarriorForLifeFund.org. That's probably the easiest. Right, and also BostonBruinsAlumni.com, where you can just follow the links and. We'll be posting updates on lineup changes and anything else as the game gets closer. But in the meantime, we will say thank you to John Horgan for his taking some time tonight. As I said, John is somebody uh, I joke around with a lot and we have a lot of fun, but it, for whom I have a tremendous respect because of all the little things he does that maybe people don't notice and the hard work that he puts into every single event. It could be a remote event out in the middle of nowhere and uh, 
maybe nobody would even notice, but he always gives 100% uh, to, the, uh, to the event and always uh, makes it a, a special night for not only the Bruins alumni, but their opponents and families as well. So we thank John again for being with us, and we look forward to seeing you live and in color very soon. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And can I just, uh, for the folks listening, my relationship with you, you and I literally um, are the same type of guy. We're the only uh, two guys in the world that can name every WHA roster. <laughs> I know the goals and the assists. You know all the history behind it. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. uh, we love old-time hockey. But you and I grew up an eighth of a mile apart from each other in Marshfield, and we never knew that during summers, which I think is so cool. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, brother from a different mother, as they say. And, uh, <laughs> right. but anyway, John, you're the man. We appreciate it. And uh, we'll look Thank forward you, to talking to you very soon, my friend. Thank you, sir. And finally, we'll conclude the show with former Bruins defenseman Frank Simonetti, who is very closely involved with the Warrior for Life Fund and, of course, is coordinating the Bruins Rangers alumni game on October 26th. Had a chance to catch up with Frank outside the ice surface at the Bruins practice facility, so it sounds a little bit different than our usual interview. But uh, we talk with Frank. He gives a good overview of both uh, the event and the program. We hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you. I met a guy named Tony Cabana. He was a guest skater on our uh, one of our alumni games, and we hit it off right away. He got involved in my bowling event, and a few months after that, he asked me if I would be interested in going down to Virginia Beach to meet some uh, of the Naval Special Warfare community uh, that he uh, got to know through the Navy SEAL Foundation. And the story is interesting because uh, he got involved with them after watching Lone Survivor. He was so moved by the movie that he started doing research and he, and he, and he figured out quite, quite quickly that maybe not enough was do, being done to, to recognize these guys or help them out. So he made a cold call on to the Navy SEAL Foundation, called the CEO right up and said, I'd like to get involved. She called him right back and said, come on down to Virginia Beach, I'd love to meet you. And over the course of the next uh, year or so, Tony, through his relationship with Cross Insurance, he's a, he's a VP at Cross Insurance, took some Gold Star families up to Patriots game, let them carry out the game ball, and really got entrenched in the Navy SEAL Foundation. So he's sitting with the CEO, Robin King, one day, and he sees a hockey puck on the desk. He says, hey, what's that all about? I play hockey, uh, tell me about it. Well, the Navy SEAL Foundation had been supporting a hockey program in Virginia Beach run by uh, Naval Special Warfare and a few of the Navy SEALs. Um, and they were supporting that program because of its benefits to the community and their families. Um, and it, Tony went down and met with the hockey program. He played in a couple of memorial games honoring two SEALs that were part of the program that were killed in Afghanistan. He came back supercharged. And he asked me if I would go down to, with him to play in that game the following year. So I reached out to Bob Beers and said, hey, Beersy, I'm going down to participate in the game. We're trying to maybe build them a better locker room because there's no facilities in this particular locker, no ADA compliance. There's a whole laundry list of things. Bobby and I went down, met the community. We saw how important hockey is to these warriors, not only 
the special forces, but uh, all military, because Virginia Beach is the most dense military concentration in the country, all branches of the service. So there are Air Force, Navy, Army, Marines, Coast Guard guys playing in this hockey program. We saw how important this is. Hockey helps them uh, reacclimate and decompress after coming off a tour. When they're deployed, other team members will take their kids, bring them out on the ice. There's a sled hockey program. It helps with sleep deprivation. The laundry list of how important hockey is to this community is long. I came back from that visit, supercharged, and I started reaching out to all of our alumni and saying, hey, look, there is something special going on in Virginia Beach. We need to be a part of it. I talked to Rick Middleton, talked to Bob Sweeney, the Boston Bruins Foundation. And this past summer, Bob Sweeney, Rick Middleton, myself, Kenny Hodge Jr., Bruce Crowder, Tim Sweeney, and Dave Jensen went down with our wives. And with the support of the Boston Bruins, we helped run three hockey clinics, youth hockey clinics for all ages. The Bruins uh, put on a big barbecue for the families. We gave, we gave out uh, street hockey equipment to all the kids. It was a fabulous event. The next day, we played in their memorial hockey games. So it's interesting. The year previous we went down, there were maybe 30 people playing. Second year we got out, now there's 50 people. Word got out, and it was such a moving experience because you're playing with military members, both male and female, their children, their wives or spouses, and it's such a family-oriented uh, community down there, and hockey is special. So, you fast forward a little bit. Their program is so successful, and their rink is so small. It's a converted grocery store, and they don't have enough room to expand in the property. We are helping them, one, try to grow the program, and to do that, we need to uh, raise funds to help them build a new hockey rink. What we're doing on October 26th is we're bringing in the New York Rangers alumni to play the Boston Bruins alumni at Bentley Arena at 1 p.m. It's a beautiful state-of-the-art, platinum lead certified, facility holds 2,200 people. We really want to bang it out. So if you'd like to come watch Ray Bork, Rick Middleton, Brian Leach, Joe Mullen, three or four of those, three of those guys are Hall of Famers. Rick should be. Um, and Adam Graves, and the laundry list of people goes on. Bob Beers, Andy Brickley, Andrew Raycroft. We had a great crew playing in this game, uh, all to benefit the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEAL Foundation. And what's been heartening uh, through our efforts, and it's fairly young. We're only uh, six months into this thing. When we <clears throat> reached out to uh, key sponsors, Harvard Pilgrim, Health Plans Inc., Tufts, all New England-based insurance companies who support military causes, they were on board in a matter of minutes of our meeting. They said, we're behind this, we want to get involved, and they are supporting us with resources and contacts and reaching out to their communities. I also want to thank uh, the Bruins Foundation, Boston Bruins Foundation, Bob Sweeney, who have really picked up this event and helped drive it as a key part of their overall uh, philanthropy that they do helping uh, children's causes in New England and in this case down in the Virginia Beach Norfolk area. It's been a godsend to have them involved. Uh, and I can't uh, not thank the New York Rangers for their involvement. They jumped on board. The Boston Bruins alumni they're on board, and the, uh, the upswell of interest in this event and the cause is, uh, is dramatic. We've got Nessun, 
that's going to come and uh, cover the game on Saturday. We've got 98.5. Thank you, 98.5, for all the support you've given us. Uh, the Boston Bruins alumni and their media staff has been tremendous. Uh, so if you want to be part of the cause or part of the game, please visit warriorforlifefund.org where you can buy tickets. Uh, military and first responders and their family are free. So please, we want to pack this building. Uh, tickets are available if you walk up at the door too, but if you register early, you'll be sure to get in the building and get on the list. It's a tremendous event. We hope to see you on Saturday, October 26th at Bentley Arena. Thanks for listening to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. Just a reminder to please consider giving the show a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. These ratings and reviews help us become a lot more visible and make the show more accessible to hockey fans everywhere. I personally read all the reviews and greatly appreciate them all. If you have thoughts or suggestions for the show, you can talk to, contact us through our website at ProHockeyAlumni.org or be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at ProHockeyAlumni. Thanks for listening.